0: You're listening to Comedy Central. Well, hello everybody and welcome to our first episode of 2021 and the last episode of Donald Juvenile Trump, the only American president who got impeached more times than he got elected. In 24 hours, Donald Trump will no longer be president and Americans will finally be able to take a deep breath except for the 24 million of them who have COVID because of the government's horrible response. We're gonna be catching up on all of the news. Plus, Carrie Mulligan will be joining us to talk about her brand new movie, Promising Young Woman. So let's do this, people. Welcome to The Daily Social Distancing Show. From Trevor's couch in New York City to your couch somewhere in the world. This is The Daily Social Distancing Show with Trevor Noah. Ears Edition. Tomorrow, Joe Biden will be sworn in as the 46th president of what's left of the United States. Although judging from the preparations, perhaps United isn't the right word for the country. Tonight, extraordinary security in the nation's capital, officials taking no chances, military reinforcements arriving by the plane load. National Guard troops coming from every corner of the U.S. On every street, more fencing, more police, more troops. Fencing with razor wire, barricades and checkpoints everywhere, restrictions on drones, helicopters patrolling the skies, and police boats scouring the Potomac River.
1: More than 25,000 National Guard troops in the nation's capital, many already there and sleeping on cots. Biden planned to take the train from his home in Delaware to D.C., but that trip has been canceled due to security concerns about his arrival at Union Station just blocks from the Capitol.
0: Oh man. Poor Joe Biden. He loves trains, but security is so tight that they won't let him ride one. And it makes sense. Trains are the worst way to get your new president to his inauguration. Because forget terrorists. Biden could get hurt just from a guy trying to carry boiling coffee down the aisle. Also, it's so easy to plan a train attack Because a train can't change course. We all know where it's going. There's a track. If a train leaves Delaware for DC at 9 a.m. and it travels at 80 miles an hour, well, we know it's gonna get to DC. It'll get there. And this just shows you how divided America is right now. It's even having trouble transitioning power from an old white guy to an old white guy. Security wasn't even this tight when the president was about to be black. Now, of course, the reason for all the security is that no one wants a repeat of January 6th, when a mob of the world's angriest aunts and uncles attacked the Capitol building. And we all watched the riots live on the news that day. But as time goes on, we're finding out that the situation was even crazier than we thought. New details tonight show just how close the violent mob got to the vice president and his family. As the mob chanted "Hang Mike Pence" and a makeshift gallows went up, the vice president, his wife, and daughter were just seconds away from being spotted, according to the Washington Post. At one point, they were hiding less than a hundred feet from the violent crowd attacking police officers,
1: journalists, and others. And the chilling search for Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Inside the Senate chamber, insurrection. something where the f are
0: they? Where are they? Sorry. While we're here, we might as well set up a government.
1: Hey, let's take a seat, people! Let's take a seat! Hey, Nancy Pelosi! Let's vote on some shit!
0: You know, I used to blame lawmakers for not getting anything done, but now I'm starting to think that maybe it's the Capitol building that jams up Congress. Because did you see this mob? They came in with the goal to overthrow the government, but then once they got in, they were like, Yeah, let's throw this thing. You know what, maybe we should vote on something. I don't know, let's... Actually, guys, let's adjourn for the day. We'll come back tomorrow and we couldn't get anything done. And if you didn't believe it before, this is how you really know that Trump supporters are a cult. Because they wanted to hang Mike Pence for finally accepting the election results. Mike Pence, people. No one has been more loyal to Trump than Mike Pence. While Trump was screwing America over the last four years, Mike Pence was gently guiding his hips from behind. Now you're calling him a traitor? Mike Pence? And I know people don't like him, but I for one am really glad that this mob didn't hurt Mike Pence because I think we could all agree that no one should have to die a virgin. Now, since that day, the FBI has rounded up over 130 people so far for taking part in the assault on the Capitol. And if you're wondering, how on earth did they find all these people? Well, it turns out, it was all on the gram. The man posing beneath the sign above Nancy Pelosi's office is a firefighter from Florida, Andy Williams. And we're all trying to get into the Capitol to stop this. A corporate lawyer from Dallas, Paul Davis, posted this video and was quickly identified by his boss. Nicholas Rodine, wore his work ID badge around his neck.
1: This man posted a selfie smoking a cigarette with the caption, hello from the Capitol, LOL. The man who put his feet up on Nancy
0: Pelosi's desk is 60-year-old Richard Barnett, known as Big-O. I left
1: her a note on her desk. It says Nancy Big-O is here, you
0: And this fellow, <laughs> Derek Evans, live-streamed the moment he and other members of the mob broke into the Capitol. Derek Evans is in the Capitol. No, guys, guys, you can't be serious. Has it really gotten this bad that social media has poisoned us to the point where we're gonna live stream our treason? And I love how some MAGA people were like, this is our 1776. Yeah, guys, you didn't see George Washington crossing the Delaware like, I do declare selfie. I will say though, this is an argument for defunding the police because you don't need billions of dollars for detectives when you can find criminals just by scrolling your Instagram Discover page. So after four years, President Trump is spending his last days in power like many tin pot dictators, convincing his most rabid fans to keep fighting for a lost cause while he hides in a bunker somewhere. But whether you hate Trump or whether you just mildly dislike him, you have to admit a few things about this man. Number one, he has changed American politics forever. For starters, The red phone in the Oval Office will always call McDonald's instead of the Pentagon. That's not gonna change. Also, he's completely dropped the bar for presidential behavior. I mean, in 10 years, a president could pee in the middle of a press conference and everyone will just be like, huh, I guess he just had to go. Also, you gotta admit that Trump, from the time he ran for president, he's been consistent. You know, the victimhood and the racial resentment that came down that escalator in 2015, Well, those are the same that ended up at the Capitol on January 6th. And because Trump has been so consistently bad, because he's been so consistent at being himself, he's exposed how bullshit so many other people are. For instance, Fox News. They spent all of 2020 screaming that blue lives matter. The way Fox News defended police during the George Floyd protests, you would have thought that opposing police brutality was the same thing as killing police. But then, when their people stormed the Capitol and police at the Capitol were beaten and actually killed, two officers were actually killed, all of a sudden Fox News is saying this. These are not conspiracy theorists motivated just by lies. Uh, That's a bunch of nonsense that people want to tell us. These are people that understand first principles. They love freedom and they love free markets. And they see exactly what the anti-American left has done to America.
2: So many of them are just
0: patriotic, well-loving Americans who are frustrated that their institutions of government, of media uh, have let them down. A lot of these people are not dispossessed. They're not some, you know, creepy androgynous blogger who shows up to burn things down. They're like kind of solid Americans. Ah, I get it now. These people weren't creepy bloggers. They were solid law-abiding Americans. And nobody is allowed to kill cops, except for the people who respect cops. They can do whatever they want. Also. Where the hell did they love free markets come from? Free markets? I wasn't picking that up when people were smashing windows and breaking the capital down. Free markets? Free markets are not something that drives a riot. No one's ever slapped someone over a free market before, much less murdered a police officer. Look, man, the point is, you guys clearly don't care about cops. You only care about the idea of using cops to keep black people in their place. So please miss me with that bullshit. Also, Lindsey Graham, Whether you're a liberal or conservative, everyone should agree that this asshole, this Cracker Barrel mascot is a weasel. The worst weasel of any kind, because after the Capitol was stormed, after the Capitol was stormed, and it looked like Trump was done, he gave a big speech about how he was done supporting Trump because Trump took it too far. He just took things too far. Oh no. But then the next week, he was suddenly flying on Air Force One again because he realized Trump wasn't out, and then he started blaming the attack on the Democrats.
2: Senator Lindsey Graham placing blame for the Capitol Hill riot on House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Watch this.
0: What happened on January the 6th was one of the low points in my time in office. It was horrendous to see people come and take over the Capitol, the House and the Senate, beat officers, defile the seat of government. How in the hell could that happen? Where was Nancy Pelosi? It's her job to provide capital security. Yeah, Nancy, why weren't you in your office when people were coming to kidnap or kill you? What were you hiding? Yourself? ha We We you, Nancy, we gotcha. What did Lindsey Graham expect Nancy Pelosi to do, huh? Set up booby traps in the Capitol like an old age home alone? Please, please miss me with this bullshit. And this also goes out to all those Republicans who spent four years backing a president who called his opponents un-American and enemies of the people, but now, Now that he's getting impeached and might be held accountable, oh, all of a sudden, it's time to move on. Today is a moment for members of Congress to put aside partisan politicking and place people over power. We should be focused on bringing the nation together. We must be bigger and better than the most base of
1: instincts that
0: have been driving our political discourse. It is destroying us. Let's link arms with one another and begin to heal. It does not matter if you are liberal moderate or conservative. All of us must resist the temptation of further polarization. as history shows, unity is not an option, it's a necessity. Okay, I don't know what crazy ass world you people grew up in, but how are you gonna start a fight and then tell everyone else to calm down? Can you imagine if a terrorist tried to hijack a plane and then after the marshal tackled him, he says, okay, okay, I think everyone needs to calm down. Let's just come together and watch the rest of Croods, all right? Let's just do this together. I'm gonna have the chicken, thank you. Shh, the movie. All these people who try to overthrow the government, yo, they can miss me with that bullshit. And it's not just Fox, it's not just Republicans. Social media companies, for years, People have been warning you about the violence and conspiracy that you've been amplifying and allowing to spread on your platforms. And for years, you've said you can't do anything about it. But now that the Capitol has been ransacked, now all of a sudden, it turns out you can. Now that the violence has happened, we're gonna do everything we can to stop the violence from happening. I mean, I don't know if I'm the only one, but I think it's really funny how social media companies said that they don't have a magic button to stop hate online but then when Trump lost, suddenly they were like, oh, we do have that button. Here it is. So what? Now these companies want a cookie for doing the right thing too late? Miss me with that bullshit. I will say though, it was funny that random apps that had nothing to do with Trump also decided to pile on the Trump ban. Like when Spotify and Pinterest banned Donald Trump. What was that for? What, did Spotify think that Trump was gonna release a mixtape? What's the Pinterest ban for? Is Trump gonna put up border wall images on his page? Although. It would be funny if Spotify was actually the thing that broke Donald Trump's heart. Like if he was just sitting there like, I don't care that they blocked my Twitter or my Instagram or Facebook, I've still got my Spotify. (laughs) Look, man, here's the thing. By this time tomorrow, Donald Trump will be out of power. And I just hope, I hope that he slowly fades away like one of his tans. And I know that he'll never fully be gone, All right, he's basically the COVID of politics. America is gonna be experiencing side effects long after he's out of the system. And unfortunately, we're probably gonna see mutated strains as well. But I do hope that with him at least not being president, we can all get back to being a bit more honest with each other and more nuanced in how we talk about what divides us. That's my wish for the next year because I don't know what 2021 is gonna bring, but if it involves any bullshit, I kindly request that I be missed. All right, when we come back, we'll take a look at all the amazing thing Jared and Ivanka accomplished in office. And Kerry Mulligan is still joining us on the show. Don't go away. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. The four years of the Trump administration has been one blooper montage of scandals. We've had everything from kids in cages to a Sharpie on a hurricane map. And in the very last week, the administration, believe it or not, has managed to squeeze in what might be the funniest scandal yet. Ivanka Trump and husband Jared Kushner reportedly instructed their Secret Service detail not to use any of the bathrooms in their Washington home.
1: The Washington Post says since 2017, taxpayers have been footing the bill to rent a nearby studio apartment for $3,000 a month so agents could have access to a toilet.
0: Okay, now before you judge these two, keep in mind that Ivanka and Jared probably have really weird bathrooms. I mean, look at them. They don't even look like they use toilets. You know, and when Jared has to go, Ivanka probably just squeezes him like an old tube of toothpaste. Or maybe the reason they did this is not because they're snooty and snobbish. Maybe they did it because they want to protect the Secret Service. Do you ever think about that, huh? Like maybe, maybe Ivanka takes mega dumps. You know what I'm talking about. You know those dumps where you walk into the bathroom and it's like a wall of smell pushes you back out? Yeah, maybe Ivanka and Jared were like, look, you Secret Service agents might need to take a bullet for us one day. There's no need to take one every day. Just use the apartment. But say what you want about Jared and Ivanka. The two of them have been loyal to their big papa to the end, which is why they deserve a farewell tribute for their four years of
1: whatever it is that they did. Who has been the most valuable member of the Trump team? Sean Hannity? The MyPillow guy? Melania's noise-canceling headphones? Actually, that's a trick question. The most important person in the Trump administration isn't one person. It's a couple. Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner. No credentials necessary. Jared and Ivanka, or Jarvanka, might have been Washington outsiders when Trump won the election but they've had a world of experience serving everyday Americans. Ivanka sold them handbags and Jared evicted them. Trump knew that Jarvanka was the couple for the job, any job. Ivanka became advisor to the president, an important role in which she was tasked with advising the president. Jared, meanwhile, had a bit more on his plate.
0: Middle East peace, criminal justice reform, the opioid crisis, reforming care for veterans, lead advisor on relations with China, Mexico, Canada, Middle East, infrastructure, trade deals, broadband policy and border wall
1: construction. That's right, Jared Kushner was like a Swiss army knife if all the tools were nail clippers. Though Jarvanka didn't get off to the smoothest start in the world. Ivanka tried to use her new position to hawk jewelry while Jared had to redo his financial disclosure forms more than 40 times. The president even had to bend the rules to get Jared and Ivanka their security clearances, just because the corrupt deep state FBI were jealous of all the cool foreign business contacts Jared's had over the years. But despite the odds stacked against them, Jared and Ivanka took Washington by storm. Did they have relevant experience? No. Were they qualified for their positions? No. But what did they accomplish? Yes. They hit the ground running. Jared got busy solving America's criminal, just opioid, Middle Eastern China-Mex Canada wall, and Ivanka toured factories, visited spaceships, and even performed science stuff. It's like that old saying, picks and it didn't happen. But it was on foreign affairs that Jarvanka really scored. Jared jetted off to Iraq to model the latest from the Brooks Brothers Forever War collection. He heroically preserved U.S.-Saudi-Arabia relations after they had a little oopsie with an American journalist. And he turned out to be the perfect person to solve the conflict between Israel and Palestine.
0: I'm gonna read to you what he said. I've been studying this now for three years. I've read 25 books on
1: That's right, 25 books. Kushner had acquired a goosebump series worth of knowledge and he was ready to put it to use. Meanwhile, Ivanka. She sat in her dad's chair at a G20 summit. So that's fun. Jarvanka did such a good job that in 2020, President Trump gave Jared his most important job yet, overseeing the government's response to the coronavirus pandemic. And Jared was ready to claim victory almost immediately.
0: I think you'll see by June, a lot of the country should be back to normal, and the hope is, is that by, by July, uh, the country's really rocking again.
1: But there was one issue where Jarvanka really shined. And that issue was themselves. We have brand new questions today about Jared Kushner's real estate dealings. Last summer, his property at 666
2: Fifth Avenue, we got a much needed infusion of cash. But
1: where did it come from? China on April 6th approved Ivanka Trump's patenting for all of her brands to be sold in China the very day that she was having dinner whining and dining with the Chinese president at Mar-a-Lago. Ivanka, particularly, is making millions and millions of dollars while she's in office that Jared continues to oversee his real estate entities. So they are profiting, they're leveraging the presidency so that they can get richer and richer. And to think, people say they have nothing to show for the last four years. Jared and Ivanka did more for Jared and Ivanka than any Jared and Ivanka in history. And when the haters tried to blame Ivanka for whitewashing her dad's more controversial policies, she had the perfect reply. If being complicit is wanting to, is wanting to be a force for good and to make a positive impact, then I'm complicit. You see, to Ivanka, definitions of words are like tax laws. They're just suggestions. Where Jervanka end up after the White House is anyone's guess. Will they settle into a beachside resort in Florida, a family villa in New Jersey, or perhaps an island retreat off the coast of Manhattan? Wherever they go, they will be taking with them four years of being in the White House and saying things and going places and... Other government things. Jared and Ivanka, we thank you for your service. Whatever it was. Truly
0: inspiring. All right, when we come back, I'll be talking to Carrie Mulligan about her new movie, which has everyone talking. Stick around. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. Earlier today, I spoke with Academy Award-nominated actor Carrie Mulligan. We talked about her new film about female power and revenge that she executive produces and stars in. Check it out. Carrie Mulligan, welcome to The Daily Social Distancing Show.
2: (laughs) Hi, how are you doing?
0: I'm doing as good as can be expected considering everything that's happening in the world. The question is, how are you doing? Because you're in the UK right now and you have the new variant of corona out there that's just shutting everything down. So how are you doing and how is everybody around you?
2: Yeah, it's, um, you know, I think we all anticipated something getting worse for a little bit before it got better, but it's obviously, we're in lockdown, so we're all homeschooling and feels like we, you know, the beginning of March last year. So, um, but no, we're great, we're very lucky. We we live in the country, so we've got space.
0: I feel like in, in the hierarchy of things, people have said, you know, essential workers, uh, it's the people helping to keep everybody alive. It's the people who are providing food and keeping grocery stores open and it's the teachers who are still out there trying to educate kids through, uh, through some of the, the toughest times we've ever experienced. After all of that, my top thing is anyone who comes out with a good movie during the pandemic. Yeah, I'm, I'm so excited. When a new movie comes out, that's actually amazing. And that is what you have given us with Promising Young Woman. I will say, though... I was shocked at how dark and yet funny it is. Am am I allowed to even feel that?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, it was very much kind of written as a dark, very dark comedy. I mean, it's full of comedians. The whole cast is pretty much everyone apart from Connie Britton and I are kind of people who are very comfortable in comedy. So uh, it was definitely, yeah. And then that's sort of part of what... I think the shame is, you know, and it's such a small thing by comparison to world events, but the loss of having that experience, you know, for a lot of people in the cinema, of being around other people, it's sort of in these very dark comedies, I think it's an audience around you that gives you permission to laugh in moments where you're not sure if you can laugh. And that's kind of part of the tension and release of a film like that.
0: As a comedian, I I think most comedians will agree with me in saying that if you say comedy and sexual assault. We, we, everyone pauses. We go like, I, I, I don't know, I'm gonna, I'll talk about escalators first and I'll, I'll try and get, <laughs> get to that. What made you think that you could be part of making a film that used comedy as a tool to discuss one of the issues that has, I mean, from the Me Too movement and even before that, been one of the most important conversations to have in society?
2: Well, I, it was really the strength of the writing and, and meeting Emerald Fennell, who uh, was our director. You know, the, the hardest things in life we often can only get through by using humour. You know, some moments of your life that are completely tragic are marked by moments of, you know, kind of comedy and hysterical giggling, you know, the kind of part of you that wants to laugh at a funeral because you just don't know how to cope with your... Um, right, yeah. It feels very much like life. And I think the main thing with this story is that it, it's not a fantasy. It's, it's based on experiences that so many of us know, people who've been through them, and trying to be honest about that, but also recognizing that there are, that if you want to talk about this kind of stuff and you want people to think about this kind of stuff, you know, there are ways of doing it that entice an audience. You know, this is a film that I think you want to see as opposed to one that you feel like you should see.
0: You play a character who, um, whose friend is the victim of, a childhood friend, really, is the victim of sexual assault. And it, it, it leads us into a story of revenge and justice, really. Do you think there's a sense of catharsis that, that was intended in writing the script? Is, is, it, is it meant in some ways to be the movie for people who say like, you know what? I've experienced this. I've had a friend who's experienced this and this, this helps me feel a different way about it or see my feelings from a different point of view?
2: I mean, uh, definitely from talking to people, um, they've, you know, there's been a sense of catharsis. I think also just like, you know, for me, smashing up a car Oh, <laughs> which you see? Um, <laughs> it's really fun. And it does um, definitely helps. But I think, you know, I mean, it, if, if that's people's experience, I think that's, you know, that's great. But I think the conversation I think that Emerald was sort of hoping to create would be something that went further into the kind of cultural conversation. And that, you know, these situations that happen in our film have happened in so many comedies, bro comedies, you know, films where, a guy will try and lose his virginity in a nightclub at at any expense or, you know, try and identify the most drunk girl or, you know, so these are things that we've watched and we've kind of laughed at and has been so normalized in our culture for so long. Um, So it's not so much as sort of, of course it touches on that stuff but it's not so much pointing blame or, or, or sort of assigning people villainous roles it's more how have we all been complicit in this it does give people an opportunity to sort of experience this stuff through a different lens because we're so used to seeing this kind of stuff told from the perspective of the the boy or the man or you know right. and get through you know the, the perspective of the very drunk girl in the corner uh, except in this situation she's actually stone cold sober. <laughs>
0: You know, we, we've we've been taught to believe that somebody who has classically unattractive features is going to be the bad guy or someone who looks menacing, acts menacing. And in this movie, what was really fantastic is seeing nice guys, good guys, being the bad guys, seeing the good guys doing the bad things. That was a really interesting choice, not just in the characters, but in the casting as well, because... I mean, you're seeing Bo Burnham in this movie and you're like, I love Bo Burnham. And then I watched the movie and I was like, I don't know if I like Bo Burnham. (laughs) That's a really, it's a really interesting way to tell a story. And it seems like it's, it's it's a core tenet of what the story is about. Why do you think that was so important? Yeah,
2: well, it was all very intentional. I think, you know, Emerald wanted people that we feel comfortable with and that we have a sort of sense of nostalgia about because... You know, I think if you see somebody who looks sort of inherently villainous and you associate them with playing the baddie in a bunch of films, like you immediately distrust him. And I think the point about this was that you would enter into one of these situations and feel comfortable momentarily with this person and you'd feel safe. And it goes to the cast of Connie Britton as the dean. This is someone that, you know, Connie's like everyone's favorite person and you would go to her if you were in a crisis and... So I think, you know, subverting our expectations around that stuff was really important. And also the way that Emerald directed them was so brilliant because she told each of the men, Adam Brody and Sam Richardson, and uh, at the beginning of the scene, you know, this is, this is a romantic comedy and you're the lead. You know, you've you've just met the love of your life. Wow. That's how you scene. So they were all entering into it with this sort of amazing, earnest, committed, kind of, I'm the hero here and I'm going to save this girl. You know, so it was the the approach... I think it highlights what it feels like when this is not happening to someone that you, that you don't like or you don't know. Is, this is what it feels like. You know, what if, it's a very different situation if someone you know gets accused of something like this. So casting these very kind of photogenic, <laughs> sweet, lovely people that are genuinely lovely in real life, I think, puts a different twist on that.
0: I will say it's, uh, it is dark. It is thrilling, and it is funny in moments where you you genuinely do not expect it to be. Uh, But most importantly, it's uh, easily the best film of the year. I know the year just began, but it's uh, still gonna be one of the best films of the year. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, and uh, congratulations once again. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Don't forget, Promising Young Woman is in theaters and available on demand. We're gonna take a quick break right now, but we'll be right back after this. Well, that's our show for tonight. But before we go... COVID-19 has killed more than two million people worldwide. And today, the United States passed 400,000 deaths from this virus. The pandemic is as bad as it has ever been, but luckily our first responders are still out there on the front lines, saving lives. Now, if you can help them out, then please consider a donation to First Responders First, which offers first-class medical and psychological treatment for the first responders. Find out how you can help at the link below. Until tomorrow, stay safe out there, wear a mask, and remember, blue lives matter more than black lives matter. But when white lives come along, well, then those blue lives don't mean shit. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, ears edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com.